Hello and welcome to episode 68 of Command Space on the glorious 5x5. My name is Mike Hurley and I have the pleasure today of being joined by Mr. David Bernard. Hi David, how are you? Doing well. Thank- it's my, my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. So David, why don't you tell me what you like to be known for? Well, I like to be known for a lot of things, uh, but today we'll be talking about app building. So um, I like to be known for building great apps. So you, uh, your, your company, Contrast, previously AppCubby, um, you are the head of the company? Like what, what, is your, what would you say is your position at Contrast? How do you describe <laughs> yourself? I am Contrast. You are. It is you. It is nobody else. No, I really, I, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, it really kind of is just me. Um, you know, I've, I'm grateful to actually have partnered with several people over the years. Uh, so right now, um, Launch Center Pro is actually a partnership between me and Justin Ewens, who does the development for Launch Center. And then uh, Perfect Weather is actually a partnership between myself, Alfred Pagan, who does the programming, and Julian Martin, who does the the art. Um, but as far as the company goes, um, you know, the, we don't have any employees, or, or I I don't have any employees particularly. Um, my cousin Brock uh, helps out part time, so he's really the only employee ish person. But it's it's very very part time. Um, and then uh, I pay the the guys over at Aptfolk to help out with um, support, and then kind of just hire um, contractors here and there as needed for various um, things. So it's kind of a kind of a hodgepodge, but uh, but really it is just me as far as the company goes. So what's your background like? What in your life has led you to the point where you now make apps? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, it was it's kind of a, a long and winding road to this to this place. Um, at university, I actually studied um, sound recording technology, and it was interesting because back then I was actually really frustrated with the director of the program. It was a really small program, about sixty students throughout the whole um, program from, you know, freshman to senior, it's only 60 students. Um, so, you know, we got a lot of uh, close attention from the director and stuff, and it's part of a much larger university, but uh, I wanted to be a recording engineer. You know, my dream since I was like 13 was to work at a recording studio and make albums. And so when I got to, to university and started actually studying it, I specifically went to Texas State they had purchased a recording studio and started the recording technology program and were one of the few places in the nation where you could actually go to a university and study all this. Um, but anyhow, the, the, the director of the program um, turned it into a very broad study. Um, I took classes in physics, electronics, multimedia, video production, took a couple of computer programming classes. I had to take most of the stuff a music major would take, so music theory, ear training, all of that. Um, in addition to all the standard university stuff like English and composition and history and stuff like that. So I was always really frustrated with the director because I just wanted to go work at a recording studio. So I saw all this other stuff as, as very superfluous. Um, and as it would turn out, you know, that, that all ended up being a pretty good background and kind of a, um, you know, expanded my mind and thinking early on. 
um, which ultimately has helped me, I think, be a lot better at what I do now. Um, so what happened though is after after university, I um, I kind of bounced around a little bit, spent some time doing home theater installation, um, did real estate. Real estate's a family business, so I did a little real estate for a while. And then I actually ended up as a recording engineer. So I spent five years as a, a freelance recording engineer uh, making albums in the Austin area. And um, somewhere in that fourth year, I started dating uh, Elizabeth, who's now my wife. And um, the, the closer we got to marriage, and then once we finally got married, it just became really clear that that the recording studio life wasn't going to to fit very well with um with married life and and you know our plans to to have kids and raise a family and whatnot um our first like six months of marriage she was working nine to five and I was in the studio a lot so I would work like noon to midnight or (laughs) three in the afternoon to three in the morning stuff like that and so uh we didn't we barely saw each other on the weekends for a while and so, uh, so I decided. Pre- uh, plus, I never made any money doing that. I think the best year, the best year I had doing recording, um, I made like twenty grand. <laughs> it was, you know, I, I did other stuff on the side. I did some like IT kind of stuff and and um, ran sound for a church and things like that. But uh, you know, I just was not making any money. So. So, so about, gosh, six months into marriage, I just took the leap and went from uh, from a project in a recording studio, and then went full time building AppCubby. Um, and I, I had be, being in the studio, I started using um, uh, Max. Well, actually, I started using, um, gosh, like System Nine in college um, at the at the audio labs and stuff. Um, but then in the recording studio, it kind of brought me back to, to using uh, Macs full time. And so I, I just turned into a total Mac nerd, hmm. um, the first, the, those five years in the recording studio. So I ended up with a 17 inch MacBook pro and I used that to do some like remote live recordings and stuff. Um, so I was, I was there day one buying an iPhone and was, was super into it and, and had started to see the potential when rumors of the iPhone SDK were floating around that, you know, just thinking it'd be a pretty, um, a pretty interesting time in technology. You know, I really saw the the iPhone as a very transformational um, device. I, I remember even like the first week I got it, um, my dad and uncle, um, well, my brother came up to to buy it, to buy one with me because we were both Mac nerds, and my dad and uncle I think just kind of didn't want to be left out, and so they asked us to each. Yeah, I think it was like a two two device limit when you bought them. Yeah. And so my brother and I each bought one for my dad and my uncle. I remember just being amazed at how quickly they learned to use it, and I had always done some of the IT consulting I did was for their company. And so, you know, I had for years struggled to like teach them how to use a computer and tried to get them on Macs and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I remember that first couple of weeks of having the iPhone and then, you know, giving one to my dad, just remember how, 
how quickly he took to it. I mean, I remember at the time just thinking like, I mean, it was like a duck to water. You know, here's a, you know, at the time, like 55-year-old guy who's always somewhat struggled with technology, even though he's, you know, he'd used computers since the 80s. Um, and he just took to it like a duck to water. So I, just from early on, I saw the iPhone, I saw the potential in the iPhone. Um, and so when the SDK was actually announced, um, I was uh, pretty excited about the opportunity. And my dad and uncle actually, or and my, my dad and mom and aunt and uncle um, ended up investing in the company. They fronted me 20 grand, which was a pretty big deal. Um, and they, so they fronted me 20 grand in April of 2008. And I dove head first, working like I've pretty much just been working 80 hours a week since then. So, <laughs> so about five and a half years now. Were you developing yourself? Were you coding the apps? I, I don't actually, and 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 that transition happened really early as well. Um, when when I started the company in April of 2008, my intention was to was to learn to program, and I bought um, Aaron. Uh, Hildegas, Hildegrass—I've totally botched that—but I bought the book, um, you know, the book to learn Cocoa programming, and spent about a month really digging into it and and kind of had a proof of concept tip calculator. <laughs> I, I actually created a tip calculator. That was my first first <laughs> app. Um, but I realized about a month into it that. To, to deliver at the level that I would want to deliver at, especially with you know twenty thousand dollars of my family's money on the line and hoping that I could turn it into a business, you know I just saw the level of polish and um, great user experience that Apple had had built with their apps and so I just I, I recognized pretty quick that to deliver at that level, you know, it would take me years to get good enough at programming just at a basic level to to deliver a decent app. Um, so about a month in, I put an ad in Craigslist and ended up hiring um, Jonathan Johnson. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying it at, at this point, but it was $40 an hour, which is completely unheard of in the space now. But it was kind of just a big experiment for both of us. You know, I'd never hired anybody to do programming. And um, and to him, you know, $40 an hour was good money. And it was fun getting to experiment with building for the iPhone, which, of course, nobody had done at that point. Um, and so we worked our butts off for, gosh, like four months and released the first app, Trip Cubby, in August of 2008. And that's the rest is history, right? As they say. So why did you, like, so when, when, so when you were looking at that and you, you, know, you had your developer and, and stuff like that, what, what were your responsibilities? Like, what were you looking for and what were you doing whilst building Trip Cubby? Um... Everything but programming, <laughs> and I, you know, people ask me that a lot. You know, well, what do you do? And and I think there's a there's a misconception out there, and um, I don't know. There's a, a lot of people who have, I guess, Chris Harris or somebody coined the phrase app director, um, and I find that a somewhat apt description. Though I've never been fond of the term because it it 
I don't know. It, it, partly maybe just because other people in this in the industry have kind of turned it into a little joke, um, acting as as though it doesn't bring true value. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you know if you look at that and so well honestly the 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 analogy I prefer and this is the analogy I'll run with for um, for for discussing it now is is app producer i wrote a blog post a while back you know kind of explaining that that that's pretty much what i do is is what a what a recording what a producer does in a recording studio is similar to what i do with apps um and but see what's funny is a lot of people don't understand what a a good record producer does in a studio and there's a lot of misconceptions even in the music industry that you know that a a band that goes into the studio and like has their own creative vision and just explores that creative vision all on their own is what produces great albums. I mean you'll hear a lot of people espouse that that theory of music production that you know a band should have total creative freedom that a producer is just a babysitter the re- record label sends over to um, you know, to to make sure that the music is commercial enough and and is going to be successful, but that's really not the case. Even in, a, in a, even in a recording studio, I mean, some of the some of the greatest albums of all time, or most of the greatest albums of all time, um, had had great producers uh, working with the artists. Um, you know, and there's a reason George Martin is called the Fifth Beatle. I mean, he was hugely influential, and you don't. In the history of the Beatles, you don't necessarily hear a lot about him, you know, especially, I mean, unless you're just really into it, you know, unless you're you're a huge Beatles fan and have, have, you know, really pay attention to that. But like the general public probably has never heard, especially, you know, 50 years on, has never heard of, heard who George Martin is, but, you know, he was incredibly influential in, in everything the Beatles did, um, and guys like Ross Rubin in Modern Times, I mean, there's a reason um, Red Hot Chili Peppers has done every single studio album with Ross Rubin. Um, so what, what a great producer does in a, in a music studio is, is to kind of, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's just so many roles, but is, is to kind of see, see the forest for the trees. Um, you a great producer is going to collaborate with the artist almost as a as an additional you know musician or additional artist in the studio but the the goal of a producer isn't to um you know be a, be some kind of a, a dictator over the creative process or or even necessarily like impose you know their entire creative vision on the process or things like that. But a, but a great producer goes into the studio with talented musicians and works with them to bring their vision to life in, in a, um, in a way that, that, that makes it actually happen. Um, it's not really a great way to phrase it, but, um if you if you send if you send a musician by themselves into a studio or a band into the studio with total creative freedom and no budget and no you know no time constraints and you know nobody supervising the process nobody 
um, you know, having final say in what's going to happen, you end up with Chinese democracy. You know, yeah. <laughs> you uh, for those unfamiliar, that's the uh, Guns N' Roses infamous album that took ten years to create and was like re-recorded from scratch like five different times. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't think that a that a producer is absolutely necessary for every band in every situation going into a recording studio, but there is. There's a huge benefit to a great producer and talented musicians collaborating together. Um, and some producers will go so far as to manage the budget, to book the studio time, to, you know, really kind of oversee all of it. Um, and some producers will do that aspect of things and not get involved creatively. And some will do both. So it's, it's, it's kind of... Um, there's a lot of different ways that producers work um, with musicians in a studio. So that was a really, really <laughs> long explanation that hopefully people find interesting if they don't know that much about the music industry. But so what I do is, is similar to that in that I work with really talented programmers and artists um, to bring apps to life. And, you know, more often than not, it's it's not me having this like grand creative vision of, you know, this is exactly what I want the app to be. You just need to do X, Y, and Z. But instead, we work collaboratively to come up with the ideas, to hone the the implementation concepts, to to hone the user experience and work on the on the UI, um, work on the you know how how the app feels, how it performs. Work on you know the functionality, and so we work together collaboratively to make those decisions. But then I do ultimately end up taking kind of director's cut, where you know I'm kind of responsible to make sure we get to 1.0, and so you know I end up having to make some decisions as to you know this is you know, we need to press the issue for this, you know, performance problem or this, you know, feature really needs to be in 1.0 or, you know, this feature doesn't need to be in 1.0. Let's push this off to 1.1. And so I do end up, you know, sometimes kind of being the final say, which is interesting because um, I've, I don't feel like we've, I, I've definitely butted heads at times with the people I'm collaborating with where, you know, we'll have different, um, priorities or, or there'll be frustrations along the way, you know, as deadlines get tight and things get hard. Um, but, but, but I feel like those have always been resolved amicably, um, in the end. Um, and so it, it, it doesn't ever really feel like I'm, you know, this, this crazy dictator who's just running ramshot over the project. Mm. You know, I really appreciate the work and input of everybody I work with. And so, um, you know, though not always a full collaboration in that every decision is, you know, voting and, you know, really like coming to a complete consensus, um, you know, I think that, that there is just a, uh, there has to be kind of a mutual respect working in that kind of situation. Um, so in addition to actually just, you know, iterating on the apps and whatnot, um, you know, I really try and handle everything else, everything else from marketing the apps to, you know, divvying up the income to paying bills to, um, paying the marketing budget. Um, I mean, really just 
everything else so that, you know, when Justin's working on Launch Center Pro, he really only has to do the programming. And, uh, you know, like right now, he actually does run the Launch Center Pro Twitter account. Um, but then I handle all the support email and everything else. Um, but that's partly because he just likes, you know, being able to interact with, with, um, users on, on, uh, Twitter. Um, but it's really kind of my goal to take over as much as possible so that, um, you know, the people I work with can, can do their absolute best work doing what they do best. So you had, um, you had Trip Cubby. Um, and then you went on to develop um, and launch for ex- the, the apps that you currently still have, uh, Launch Center Pro, Timer, and most recently, Perfect Weather is the newest of the applications um, that you released. I know that Launch Centers came, Pros came out. You've got two that's come out after that, but the idea for that app came before. Um, what is it that's led to you to, to develop each of these applications? Like I know that some people develop because they see a gap in the market. Some people develop because they have an itch of their own that needs scratching. What is it for you that, is, uh, that, that makes you think, I want to make X application now? Um, most of the time, most of the time, it's, it's just scratching my own itch. Um, you know, Perfect Weather came about um, you know, a lot of people were like, seriously, you're working on a weather app? Have <laughs> <laughs> we not got <laughs> enough I, already? <laughs> yeah, when I announced I was working on it. But the, the funny thing is, I actually started working on it back in, gosh, like May of 2012. Um, and at that time, even fewer <laughs> weather apps, I mean, there were still a lot of weather apps, but even fewer had shipped. And and even with all the weather apps that shipped from the time I started working on it till till when Perfect Weather actually launched, um, I still to this day have not found another weather app that I like as much as I like perfect weather. And that's why I built it. I built my perfect yeah. weather app. Um, because here in Texas, um, it, it, it just randomly will start raining and, um, rain forecasts aren't nearly as, as accurate, especially two or three days out. Um, so whether or not, and also we live in an area that's very dependent on um, on underground aquifers. So like we get our water from from the thing called the Edwards Aquifer. And what's interesting is the Edwards Aquifer is refreshed from rain about a hundred miles. This huge swash of land, but starting you know rain a hundred miles away will fill up the aquifer that then affects the level of the river here in town and, you know, ultimately our water supply. Um, so I, I, I just love to look at the weather map and see not only, you know, is it raining here, but is it raining, you know, a hundred miles out, um, where it's, it's going to refresh the Edwards aquifer. And so most weather apps, you launch them and it's, it's just this convoluted, you know, well, and I mean, you know, some of them are better than others, but you know, things like the the um, weather dot com app, you know, it's just all of these tabs and tons of information and poorly designed, and you know, it's just a lot of work to get around the app and and get the information you care about. And so, for me, Perfect Weather was scratching that itch of, you know, now I can just launch Perfect Weather. It shows me the seven day forecast you know, today's forecast, an alert if there's any severe weather alerts, 
and I see the the weather map all in that one view without it being, you know, we, we really strove to to make it data dense. And so we have had people say, you know, geez, it's 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 really dense. Well that that was intentional, but we tried and you know depending on who you ask, you know, we may have succeeded or not, but, you know, we tried to be really data dense without just cluttering the screen and without kind of being super visually noisy. Um, but, you know, you launch that one, you launch into that main view and you really get a lot of information, you know, being able to look at the weather map and see if there's rain, you know, hundred miles out, see if, uh, you know, rain's on its way in and, and visually see the radar um, or, you know, look at the seven-day forecast or pull down the little shade and, or the little, um, um, what do we call that, just the, the data view and, and swipe over and get current conditions or, you know, um, interact with the, the um, temperature uh, chart. So, you know, it really, you know, that app was definitely just scratching my own itch. I would love to be able to use perfect weather, but you know, being being in the UK and and such, cannot cannot do so. We have yeah, no weather. That's unfortunate. I, you know, <laughs> we 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 keep looking into um, international sources for weather radar. Yeah, and most of the time, uh, radar is actually run by the government in various countries, and so getting licensing and um, figuring all that out is just a mess. But the, the data provider we're working with, um, WDT, um, they you know, are, are trying to expand more and more internationally. So we might get Canada um, in the next, you know, hopefully months, not years. And then, you know, beyond that, you know, we'll see. But it's, it's unfortunate, but, you know, when you build something to scratch your own itch, it, you know, it sometimes does end up being um, more geographically limited. So recently, um, you rebranded AppCubby to become Contrast. What was the thinking that went behind this rebranding? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, <laughs> so there was a legal issue. Oh, um, Okay. Yeah, I glossed over it a little bit in a blog post, and um, I don't think I ever remember signing a particularly clear non-disclosure agreement about all of this. But but for the sake of not um, being disparaging <laughs> or or otherwise getting myself into Additional legal troubles. Um, I will give a very brief overview yes. of of what led to this change. <laughs> I've kind of wanted to talk about it, but obviously just wanted to be very careful. Um, so in the spring of 2012, um, LogMeIn, which is a, a large publicly traded company, they do about $100 million of revenue a year, and have a uh, a series of products where you can like I don't even know them that well, but it's like I think they have is it go to my PC or something like that where you yeah, can like remotely also, log it's in all and all VPN this stuff. stuff. It's all like you know, yeah, it's all that that sort of stuff. They have stuff for the iPhone and and, and all of that, right? Thing, where you can basically log into a Windows or Mac from another device. There you go. So 
So, yeah, uh, I obviously did a lot of really great research mm-hmm. <laughs> in all of this. But what I care about is that in, in um, the spring of 2012, they launched a product called Cubby. They purchased a domain, cubby.com, and launched Cubby, which is essentially a Dropbox killer, so to speak, um, that, that does very similar things. It's like, you know, cloud file storage and, um, you know, sync between your, your um, computer and iPhone and, you know, store all your files in the cloud, all that, all that Dropboxy kind of stuff. I'm not even clear what their differentiation is between them and Dropbox. They but have anyways. a big chart on their website, though. <laughs> As you can imagine, <laughs> lots of ticks and oh, boxes. Great. And apparently Cubby does everything and Dropbox doesn't. Apparently, it's basically what this this is telling me. Yes, and I'm not going to tell you to not go use Cubby, but I'm not going to tell you to go use Cubby. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in in the spring, they launched into the App Store an app called Cubby App, which was interesting because I had some Google alerts set up for App Cubby <laughs> and. Um, started getting all these email alerts of people mentioning AppCubby. And I was like, oh, sweet, you know, mashable links <laughs> to AppCubby. What's going on? <laughs> Finally, I've made it. <laughs> yeah. So as, as fate would have it, when you talk about an app called Cubby, you often say, check out the new app, Cubby, and use phrases such as that. As that. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, the app they launched into the iOS app store was actually called Cubby App. Like, I have a screenshot. They launched it as Cubby App. Um, and then they filed for a trademark to the word Cubby um, with some very broad terms um, covering pretty much everything I did with my own apps. Um, so I talked to my lawyer, and um, which I, you know, as a small company, I, I had made acquaintance of a lawyer, but not had a lot of need over the years. Yeah, he wasn't than, your lawyer per se. Like you know, he yeah. didn't just sit in your office waiting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and, and thankfully though, I had actually um, somehow I, I forget some strange series of events about two years prior had made the acquaintance of a lawyer at a really great international firm that had offices in Austin and Dallas and Houston and London and New York and San Francisco. So, you know, a a big, respectable firm. And so when I started talking to them about this, they, you know, they said, well, you know, trademark law is, 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 is pretty tough because, you know, it, it really depends on whether the average consumer would be confused or not. And what really concerned me about them being Cubby and me being App Cubby, and especially because I had Gas Cubby, Trip Cubby, and had other Cubby apps that I would have liked to have built, you know, in the future. I had a whole list of 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 uh, Cubby apps, um, and had kind of taken a break from that strategy and built Launch Center, and you know, I, I may have actually called the new app Weather Cubby. Um, if this whole thing hadn't happened. Um, but anyway, so, so the, the, the problem as I saw it was that um, 
you know, they they were like Dropbox, and I had these apps, Gas Cubby and Trip Cubby. And so if I released an app today called Gas Dropbox, you know, what, what would people think of the app? You would think, oh, well, that app works with Dropbox, right? right? I mean, it's obvious. I mean, there's, there's actually lots of apps out there like that that use, you know, the word Dropbox or some, some you know, connotation of it to signal that they work with Dropbox. And so, you know, my concern was that if Cubby took off, then in my whole company as App Cubby and my apps as Gas Cubby and Trip Cubby would very quickly be confused as only working with Cubby. Hmm. Um, so that was one business concern was, you know, if somebody uses Dropbox and they see Gas Cubby and they think, oh, well, that's only going to work with Cubby, I'm not going to download it. Um, and so, you know, at the time, they were just launching. And, you know, at this point, I, I don't feel like they've had a huge market penetration. So it's easy for us to sit here today and think, well, you know, Cubby's not that big. Nobody's going to get it confused. But I mean, you know, they just launched and I had no idea, you know, they could have been a true Dropbox killer, you know, and they do advertise a ton. Um, and it is a big company. So, you know, there's, there was just no telling at the time whether this was going to be huge and like the next big thing. And if it was, then here I was, you know, small potatoes, but looking like one, looking like I had totally co-opted their branding when actually I'd been around for five years and two, you know, looking like my apps were specifically built to work with theirs, which for one, I just didn't have any intention of building it to work with their apps. I don't even know if they have an API. Um, but then a, an additional concern, and this was actually my bigger concern, was that if, if they had any kind of a, a security breach, you know, some, you know, actress had nude photos stored in her cubby on online, you would have this huge news cycle of, you know, cubby leaking sensitive information of cubby having data breaches of cubby, you know, being yeah. lax on security. You could cubby. quite easily have app in front of that. Yeah. And so, and, and not even, and it, it wouldn't even necessarily have to have app in front of that. If the word cubby was drugged through the mud and then people go to the app store and see Gas Cubby. You know, it, it, it's a big deal to to share a brand like that. You know, and and so if if Cubby were drugged through the mud, you know, I was really concerned that people would would just stop downloading my apps. Um, and again, in hindsight, you know, Cubby hasn't done that much. They haven't had a big security breach. You know, they're not in the news a lot. So in hindsight. I could see that, hey, maybe it wasn't that big a deal to share a name. But at the time, it, it, it felt like such a huge risk to me to share branding, not only with, with another technology company, but with another company that, you know, did sync and online storage like my apps did, that, you know, were in the iOS app store like my apps. And, um, you know, so trademark law does get a little fuzzy um, as to, you know, how specific the confusion um, and the, the competition has to be. Um, but ultimately, it just felt like there was too much. It was just too close, you know. So we ended up in, um, 
wouldn't quite call it a legal battle, but I, I opposed their trademark, um, which of course, you know, as a big company, they, they don't, they wouldn't want to spend millions of dollars in advertising and branding for a, for a brand that they don't have the rights to use. Yep. Um, so we spent uh, months kind of uh, negotiating that and ultimately um, they ended up settling with me and paying me to rebrand. And uh, to this day, I am pretty, pretty, be bitter about the whole experience. Um, they didn't pay me very much because they basically strong-armed me into a position where uh, continuing to fight legally would have probably bankrupted App Cubby. Yep. Um, but so I, I just ended up with without great options, um, and they knew that and. But they knew that you know I could continue to press the legal issue, which would cost them money, and so it was kind of for them the calculus of do we you know settle and just make this go away for a little bit of money, or do we keep fighting and everybody spends money and nobody wins so you know ultimately, I think they they at least did the right thing in settling with me, and so I had a little bit of money to you know hire a web designer to to uh, rebuild the website and, you know, pay somebody for branding. And, you know, I spent like $5,000 acquiring the contrast.co domain and, uh, and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I'm in hindsight, I'm, I'm really thrilled with, with um, how everything turned out. Like I, I love the, the new brand. I think contrast is great. I think it's a really um, strong brand. I think that it's, it, I like it a lot. Yeah, and Cubby always felt a little juvenile to me. I think a lot of people just associated with, you know, I should have been making kids apps or something like that. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. And I think that, you know, what I was trying to play off was the word association of like a Cubby hole and, you know, each app was going to be a Cubby of data and app Cubby was going to be a Cubby of apps or was. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, it always felt just a little kind of tongue-in-cheek, a little juvenile um, so although, you know, obviously it's always going to have a special place in my heart, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I had that great of a brand that rebranding was going to just totally suck. But I will say like after we settled and I was looking for a new brand, it was really hard. Yeah, that's to, a horrible feeling. Yeah. To end up settling on contrast. I mean, I just spent months and months brainstorming and, and, you know, trying to find stuff. And so, you know, I was telling somebody today, you know, I was talking to them about, you know, how, how everything ended up happening with, with Cubby and Contrast and, you know, they did settle with me. And so there was a little bit of money to, to not, um, you know, well, and I'd pay legal fees and all that was 30 grand in legal fees, which gosh, it was, it was a miserable nine months of, you know, paying lawyers and not knowing whether that money was ever going to come back and stressful as to how it was all going to end. And I mean, it, it got to a point where it was impacting my health um, because I was just so stressed out about everything. Um, but anyhow, so, you know, it ended up where, you know, they did pay to settle. And so, um, but for all the time I invested in, in rebranding and even the, you know, the time of negotiating and settling and talking to lawyers and all that, 
um, you know, I probably ended up making like $5 an hour <laughs> for all that time. Um, but you know, it is what it is. And so, you know, that's, that's the long story that I've been wanting to tell that I haven't yet told. So this is the, the ultimate inside scoop and I'll probably never talk of it again and hope that log me and never listens to this. <laughs> I think, I think I've stated it very fairly though. And me too. I, you know, tried to make very factual statements and not let my emotions, uh, cause me to be more derogatory than I should have been. Um, but anyhow, so I, I am thrilled with how, um, how things have turned out and how the contrast brand, um, came together and and ultimately, I think it does fit where I want to head as a company uh, more than AppCubby. Because I did start to feel a little pigeonholed, like if I were going to release a weather app, it should be WeatherCubby. And if I were going to do more apps, they should somehow be, you know, in that theme. And, you know, people always joke, like when I release Timer, you know, everybody's saying, well, why isn't it Timer Cubby? And, you know, so it did, it did get a little annoying. You sort times. of pigeonhole yourself a little bit. Yeah. And so I feel like contrast. Um, you know, it gives me a lot more flexibility and, and, you know, it's just, it's a great brand and, and, um, you know, I do, you know, I think it just works on a lot of levels too. I mean, I, I like to think my apps are in contrast to, you know, the, a lot of the crap in the app store and, um, and, you know, kind of each of my apps, you know, ends up being just because of how, how I like to work and build things kind of unique and a statement in its own way and i and i hope my app each of my apps is in contrast to the other apps in that category you know perfect weather was a pretty big um just took its own path in the weather category you know i don't i feel like there's really not another weather weather app out like it and not that it's the end all be all perfect app. Well, we did call it perfect. Weather, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, um, but even if it's not the perfect app for everyone, I feel like, you know, it, it at least made a statement and is its own app and isn't just like every other weather app out there. And so, you know, I feel like I, I probably do that to a fault in, you know, and kind of like, you know, tap bots, has their stick, you know, and even with the iOS yeah. seven app, you know, they, it's, it's heavy in its interactions. I think in a really fun way, I love the app, mm. um, you know, but some people would call it overbearing. I think you could probably look at my apps and, and similarly say that they are at times a little opinionated and overbearing and, you know, at times probably make bad choices, you know, just to be different or not just to be different, but, you know, I do just make very different apps um, and have fun with it. So, yeah, I think the Contrast brand really, really came out really well. So I want to take a, a very quick break to talk about our sponsor for this episode. Uh, but when we come back, I want to talk to you a bit about um, the economics of the App Store um, and how some of that has been changing recently. So this episode is brought to you by the fine folks over at Squarespace who provide you with the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code TALLYHO10. So you've heard me speak about Squarespace a bunch of times, but I want to tell you again about some of the stuff that I love about them because I think that if you are starting a new web project, they are the place you should go. Now, some of the stuff that I love about Squarespace is it's really easy to build 
a design. So you get these a choice of beautiful award-winning templates that they've had made that just all look fantastic. And then you get the ability to tweak them and sort of, you know, you, all in a, in a drag-and-drop WYSIWYG interface. If you want to change the fonts, you just click what font you want to change in the design editor and then you choose from a list of fantastic fonts that they've integrated and you can see it all upgrade, sort of update live on the site. So you know how your website's going to look. You are building your website as you see it. It's For me, that really works because I'm not necessarily a designer. I'm definitely not... Um, a programmer of any kind but this gives me the the freedom and the ability to craft my own site online they have great customer support so if i somehow manage to break something or i'm not sure about something they have 24 hour a day seven day a week customer support it's fantastic all of that's the stuff that they do i love it i mean i i think that they've i've been using squarespace for maybe five years um, and I'd, I wouldn't go anywhere else if any other web project that I was starting on my own. Like my own personal blog is there. Uh, when me and Matt Alexander, we have a, a little website that we set up as kind of like a joke for our um, podcast, Bionic. We have a site there as well. Because they they just make it so simple. And they do have other things. Like if you want to sell stuff online, they have their Squarespace commerce platform as well. So you can sell physical or digital goods. You can integrate all of that into any new or existing Squarespace site, which I think is amazing. But if you are a developer or you're a designer, you can use their tools to build on top of. So, for example, if you want to develop on top of their solid infrastructure... You don't have to worry about hosting, caching, installing software, configuring a database or anything like that. You are then choosing a content management system that shares your standards of design. It's absolutely fantastic. You can build on top of it or you can use what they have built in. You get stats, you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. I love Squarespace. I just wanted to tell you about that today, talk about some of my personal experiences with them. So I want you to go and try it out for yourself. For any new project that you've got, maybe you've got a family or a friend who also is looking for a site, well, then you can do that too. They can, you can help them out. So go to squarespace.com, sign up for a free trial, no credit card needed. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code, ten, sorry, offer code TALLYHO10, T-A-L-L-Y-H-O, and the number 10. It's going to get you 10% off and you'll be showing your support for Command Space and all of 5x5. Thanks to Squarespace, they give you everything that you need to create an exceptional website. So, David, there's been a lot of discussion recently about the App Store and pricing models. You know, people talking about um, giving, like, sort of redoing their apps. Not redoing is not the right word, but when they're releasing an update, having a paid update. And you guys did that with Launch Center Pro 2. It was a brand new application, right? Am I right in thinking that? Yes. Well, it was, I mean, well, no, no, no. It wasn't wasn't a paid update, but it it was a pretty large update. We we decided not to charge for uh, Launch Center Pro 2 uh, because we're actually working on an iPad version and it's not going to be universal. It's, sorry, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I understand. But there's been a lot of that recently. Like we had Tweetbot, right, yeah, Fantastic yeah. Health. This, it's the rage at the moment. People are talking about it. And people also talking about in-app purchases as well. Um, what you are doing is, a, is another a model, as you just mentioned. So you have an iPhone app and then you have an iPad app, but they're not universal. But they, they yeah, I'm sure that they interact in some way. So... What is your? Where are you currently sitting on this? What is your current thinking about charging for applications? So, <laughs> I, I will probably want to take back some of this um, as my thoughts continue <laughs> to evolve. Um, 
but I'll give you kind of the the preview of a blog post I'm working on and just, you know, kind of my thoughts on the subject as they stand currently, um, which again, subject to change dramatically <laughs> as they do. Yep. You know, a lot of people, <clears throat> a lot of people like to be right. And I, I, I'm kind of one of those people, I don't, I don't mind being wrong and I don't mean, mind being wrong publicly. Like I, I value... I kind of value the the process more than being right. And I'd rather kind of openly discuss things than be right about everything publicly. And I think a lot of people <clears throat> kind of misunderstand me in that way that that you know, I'll tweet something and people take it as the gospel of like exactly what I think and that you know, this is going to hold true forever. Um, but you know, thankfully we work in technology and we're not politicians where every tweet's going to be mined for any, you know, policy decision and call us flip floppers. I flip flop all the time. Um, so anyhow, on to app pricing, <laughs> um, the app stores is, you know, it's just such a f fascinating place to do business. Um, in in the five years since the App Store opened, it's been, I guess, like five years and three months now, um, it, it has succeeded beyond anyone's wildest imagination. I mean, I've talked to people inside of Apple who still to this day say that, you know, when they were working toward the App Store in 2008, they just had no idea. So, you know, everyone, including Apple, has been completely blown away by the success and, and the success on, on many levels, you know, from not just the financial success of the app store in Apple now having paid developers $13 billion, but the success on the, of the app store on a cultural level that, you know, people download apps as entertainment and, and talk about apps and blog about apps and, you know, share apps with their friends. And, you know, this, the whole app thing has, has, has so, you know, penetrated culture. Um, but then, you know, it's, it's been successful on other levels too, that it, you know, it's incredible that you can, can go to the app store and really get an app for just about anything these days. So, you know, what it's enabled productivity wise and, you know, what it's enabled people to do with their iPads and iPhones is, is really incredible. Um, <clears throat> so, so it has been a phenomenal success beyond anyone's imagination. And, um, you know, I've kind of gotten a bit of a reputation as a complainer, and um, and I think some of that is also a bit misfounded, because um, from the very beginning, you know, I've never had a runaway success. Like, you know, early on, it was Trism in 2008. You know, Trism guy made like $400,000 in the first four months of the App Store, something crazy like that. And then, oh, I remember um, that game. <clears throat> I forgot about that game. Yeah. Yeah. And then there were apps like um, iShoot that I think made over a million dollars. And, you know, so a lot of these apps that made tons of money. And, you know, if I'm being completely honest, of course, I was, you know, at times very jealous of that success and hoping to, to have a success at that level. Um, but I also just wrote a, a lot about, you know, the realities of trying to run a business in the app store. And, you know, a, a lot of that time was spent, you know, discussing things that Apple could do better in running the store and things that could change. And so it's easy to see, see that kind of becoming 
um, an excuse of, you know, um, I'm not successful because Apple has not, you know, handed me success, you know, I'm entitled to success. And, um, and I think that, you know, there, there is an element of, of, of kind of an entitlement mentality sometimes of, you know, if you build it, they will come if, you know, my app should have made a million dollars and that kind of stuff. But, but ultimately I would like to think, and I would hope people, you know, walk away from my commentary on the app store with a, with a better understanding of, you know, how, how things work in the app store and why they work the way they do. And so when I'm complaining about Apple, it's not to say, you know, Apple should change this so that I can be a millionaire and I'm frustrated because I'm not an app store millionaire. It's more that like I see opportunities for, um, for a more robust app store economy and for, um, for better ways for developers to get paid and for people to be able to pay for their apps. And the thing about it is if those things happen, you know, if as developers are, are able to make a living and support themselves building apps, what do we get? We get more and better apps. And so ultimately you know, any of these suggestions that I've made about the App Store and all my talk about this has, you know, the ultimate goal of it is not, you know, to to bend Apple to my will and that I'm entitled to, you know, make so much money and, and you know, whatever. But it, it, it's really just that the, the way I see it, you know, if if myself and other developers can achieve a certain level of success financially, you know, to be able to support ourselves and support ourselves well, um, then you just get more and better apps. And that's a good thing for everybody. Um, But where it starts to break down is, you know, what, what, what do we, what does the app store really need? You know, who, who needs a launcher app like Launch Center Pro? Who needs a, yet another weather app? Does it, does it even matter, you know, all these things that, you know, and, and having all of these apps? And, and I would argue that ultimately it does, especially yeah. in that I think independent developers really have a different um, perspective. And, and a great place to look at that is, is in Twitter apps. You know, if, if all we had was the, the Twitter app, I, I think, well, for one, you know, Twitter wouldn't be what it is today. I mean, I think apps had a lot to do with its growth and success over sure. time because, you know, mobile access to Twitter is just huge. And that's what spurred people to post more and post photos. And, you know, the, the, um, airplane that crashed into the Hudson river, you know, I don't, I don't remember if that was posted from the Twitter app or another app, but you know, the fact that, that, you know, you could take a picture and immediately post it on Twitter on your phone is huge. And it wasn't Twitter who first did that. It was Twitter developers. And, you know, from Tweety to Tweetbot to Twitterific, a lot of innovation in how we build apps happened in the Twitter app space. And so, so, I want there to be people like Paul Haddad and Mark Hardeen and Craig Hockenberry, the 
Icon Factory and and his whole team, and they have a lot of really great people. Um, Gideon Mayhew, um, you know, I think this that that the entire app space benefits from those kind of people being able to focus and build great apps. Well, what does it take to focus and build great apps? I mean, you got to provide a living for yourself. And, you know, where I've struggled with, with AppCubby and now Contrast is that, you know, I've, I've had enough success to, you know, pay myself well enough to live on, but I've, I've always reinvested as much as possible right back into building apps because that's what I want to do. Um, and so, you know, the, the financial frustrations have, for me, have just been that I feel like there's so much more I want to do and could do if I did make a little bit more money in the app store. Um, so all of that said, um, I, th- I still think that there's, there's a lot that both Apple and third-party developers can do to continue making the situation better. And I think Apple, unfortunately, has a little bit of a blind spot. You know, the the App Store has been so successful, and it appears as though, you know, any app you want is available, and any app you want is is made and free and and all that kind of stuff. Um, But I think the blind spot for Apple is that it seems as though they're starting to lose the the hearts and mind of some of the most um, creative um, and battle-hardened iOS developers. Um, you know, um, s- sophistication. Um, I, I'm not even going to try and say her last name, but Sophie from Sophistication, Sophistication, or however you say it. Uh, you know, she went to work for Apple after winning a design award and building... Um, um, articles, the great Wikipedia app, and and experimenting with several other apps, and you know you can argue, you know she probably made some bad business decisions. She she made a big bet on a on a run tracking app um, with a lot of back end stuff, and it, it it appeared that that app never really took off. Um, and maybe she would have done better to have focused on on um, articles. You know, so you can say a lot in hindsight, but you know. F- the the app store would be a better place if people like her were continuing to take risks and and build whatever apps they could. Um, <clears throat> so what what I'd like to see happen is I, I really think Apple itself needs to focus a little bit more on the economics of the app store. And I I think that that's where they're really blinded right now is that they see, you know, Candy Crush um, making, you know, whatever it is, like three or $400,000 a day. And they see, you know, Supercell being valued at, you know, what is it, like $3 billion or something like that. And so you see these incredible success stories, um, but I get the sense that there's nobody at Apple digging around in the financial reports saying, you know, how much money did Tweetbot actually make when it hit number one? How much did, 
you know, perfect weather make when it hit number six in the app store? And what does that mean for our platform? And so I think if Apple started to dig into that a little bit, I think that what they would see would trouble them more than the picture they see currently of, of the app store success. I mean, right. yeah, money is being made hand over fist. You know, Tim Cook walks on stage and, and is proud to say that Apple has paid developers $13 billion. But what we've been seeing, you know, boots on the ground in the app store over the last couple of years is that a huge portion of that money is being made by these free-to-play games that, you know, whether you like them or not, you know, use basically psychological warfare to, you know, get you to spend money. And so the top 100 apps, a majority of them are that sort of app, um, which I think, you know, Apple sees that. But, but what, what, what most people, people don't realize is that when you talk about, you know, Supercell being worth $3 billion and Candy Crush making $400,000 a day or whatever it is, um, you know, there's only a few apps doing those kind of numbers. And this curve is incredibly steep. And so in the last couple of weeks, I've been tweeting some numbers, you know, as my apps move up and down the charts and as I've had, you know, Perfect Weather as a new app launch and then launched in our Pro 2.0, um, you know, my apps have gone high in the charts and I've kind of gotten a picture of what the charts um how the charts reflect actual revenue. Yeah. And then I've confirmed this with other developers who do well in the app store as well. And what we've seen is that the curve from the number one app store, the number one top grossing app in the app store, even down to number 100 is ridiculously steep. So you have, you know, Candy Crush making $400,000 a day. And by the time you get down to even number 100 in the app store, it's, maybe not even five figures. So potentially sub $10,000. And I, the, the numbers I'm going to use now are world, worldwide sales. So, you know, some apps do better internationally than others, but U.S. is still one of the biggest markets. But, you know, $10,000 a day worldwide, which that's, I mean, obviously that's great money. But now go look at the app store and look at the apps that are making that money and, most of them are, you know, these free-to-play games and things of that nature. And then go from number 100 top grossing to number 1,000 top grossing. And that's even a very steep curve. And so when you get down to number 1,000 top grossing, you're talking about only about four, maybe $500 a day in worldwide revenue. And so if you think $500 a day, again, that's really great money, but that's about $15,000 a month. Well, that's not even enough to, you know, support two developers full time, um, or you know, two two people full time. You know, th these days, if you're contracting, you know, it's easy to charge 150, 200 dollars an hour. You know, that's a heck of a lot more than um, fifteen thousand dollars a month for for a team uh, to make. So basically, you, you know, you have a situation where. Um, Sure, there's lots of apps out there and there's a lot of money being made, but it's so concentrated in the top few apps that there isn't a kind of thriving middle class of the app store. You know, it, it's, it gets pretty brutal pretty quickly. Um, and I, I don't think many people, maybe even Apple itself, realize, 
like you just think, oh, well, you know, apps are successful. You know, look at all these developers doing so well, yada, 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 yada. But what you don't realize is that, sure, you know, an app like Launch Center, you know, spiked in the charts with the 2.0 release and, you know, made some money, you know, when it spikes up high like that. But it, it's not that much money right now. And then when I look at my sales every day and, you know, you drop below that number, you know, the, the, the top 1,000 grossing. So, you know, as of today, Launch Center Pro is making like $400 a day. And again, that's actually really cool. I mean, that's, you know, that's really good money. And I split that with Justin. So, you know, we're each on track at the, at this very moment to be making about $6,000 on the, an app, um, a month on the app. And that is really cool. I mean, you know, to build an app and to, to um, be able to make that kind of money is, is pretty awesome. But, you know, we can't work full time on Launch Center Pro at $400 a day. You know, that, that doesn't quite pay the bills. Um, so, so then when you ex- extrapolate that across the entire app store, there, there just aren't many apps and that, that, that can even support a team of two. Um, and so what, you know, what does that mean for the long-term um, economics of the app store is that you're, you you're going to see over time less and less apps like Launch Center Pro where guys like Justin and I can just jump head first and, and try something and then have the financial stability to iterate, it on, over, iterate on it over time. Like for Justin and I, there's so much we want to do with Launch Center Pro, but neither of us can focus on it, you know, 100% because the money's just not there for us to focus on it 100%. And, you know, and so then we get into the other discussions of paid upgrades and other, you know, strategies. And, you know, right now we chose to go ahead and sell Launch Center Pro at five bucks a pop. And, you know, there's huge barriers to entry. I mean, you know, people shopping on the app store see five bucks and, and turn right away. And so, you know, we have been dependent on, you know, the word of mouth and great, you know, in-depth reviews like Vatisi's to really help people get over that hurdle. Um, but still, it's, it's, a, it's a big jump. And so, you know, over the next six months, you know, Justin and I are probably going to have to start focusing more on, you know, shifting the app to... Um, freemium, you know, where we have ads and, or, you know, limit the number of actions you can create or things like that. Um, which, you know, depending on <clears throat> how much time it takes us to implement all that and how much, uh, you know, it, it's neither here nor there. Um, as far as the, the ultimate, you know, strategy of the app, um, as far as, you know, we, we still have so much we want to do, whether we take it freemium or not. But the point being, you know, if, if we're spending a lot of time, um, having to bend the app around monetization versus just focusing on building the app, um, the results end up being very different. Um, so, so again, I, I mean, it's just such a complex topic because, I don't in any way think that like Justin and I are entitled to, you know, make millions of dollars a year on Launch Center Pro. But like the place that I come from is that if we can charge five bucks a pop and 
make enough money to both work on it full time, I feel like there's some really awesome stuff that we can do um, with I- automation on iOS. And we have some really, really cool ideas that you know, I'm not going to talk about now because we might not get to them. Hmm. But we have some really cool ideas of, of, of ways, of directions to take this app. So we're not entitled to make money. We're not, you know, <clears throat> saying Apple should, you know, feature us every day. But but what I'm trying to figure out, and and what I do, and I do talk to Apple about these kind of things, um, is you know what about the App Store is making that so challenging? What you know, or or what about the App Store would help us make a little more money so that we could focus on it full time? Because again, you know, the more the more developers you have out there focusing on cool apps full time the better it is for everybody you know the um you know as we do interesting things in launch center pro you know it's it's had a huge ripple effect on other apps you know implementing x callback in you know drafts you know has has done a lot of cool things as we've kind of pushed the boundaries with with and and encourage other developers to implement um URL schemes and x callback and stuff like that yeah. so so what can we do? And and um, you know, there's been a lot of of talk about a lot of different options. Um, I I do still think that some form of of free trial would be beneficial for some apps. And a lot of people talk about that and assume that Apple should just make this like a checkbox in iTunes Connect, where you just choose: do you offer a free trial or not? And any app you know, can offer a free trial or not. But in iOS 7, Apple introduced App Store receipts, which um, allow you to, uh, allow the developer to actually see when somebody purchased um, and how much they paid and all this kind of information. Mm -hmm. So developers could roll their own free trials, except that Apple currently has a policy against any kind of demo (laughs) or free trial app. They really don't want it. What's that? They really don't want it. They don't. They really don't want it. it. But what's interesting to me is that at this point, any kind of free trial that a developer could roll on their own to me would be less confusing and less user hostile than most of these free to play games, and even some of the like awkward um, in app purchase strategies that developers use to get around that rule. I mean, you know, you have a lot of apps that are just bending themselves around their monetization scheme versus just, you know, being a great app. Um, so, you know, that that's one area that I'd really love to see Apple relax the rules and allow developers to experiment with using app store receipts and in-app purchase to give people free trials. Um, and, you know, we'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm going to certainly try and push the boundaries and you know, see you know what Apple is willing to accept. Um, something like my mileage log app um, that I'm releasing, um, actually maybe this week. Um, it's it's going to sell today for five bucks, and just you know straight up, just like Launch Center, pay five bucks for it. But the App Store receipts would allow me to experiment with freemium over time, so I can drop the app to free and do things like you know limit people to five, you know inputting five records, and then you know if you want. To input more than five records, you have to unlock the pro version and things. You know, there, there there are ways to do that, but it's not clear to me if if Apple would even accept that at this time. 
But for a productivity app that I want to charge, you know, five or 10 bucks for, and an app, you know, a mileage log app that, you know, those apps used to be like 50 bucks on the Treo because, you know, if you track miles and get reimbursed or write them off on your taxes, you're saving hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a year. And so it's a really valuable app. And so if you can create an app that does that really well, which, you know, I hope to have done with Mileage Log Plus, you know, it's a huge value to people. And so if they like the app and they're saving thousands of dollars a year, it makes sense for them to pay five or 10 bucks for that. But when you're in the app store economy and everything's free or 99 cents, it's a big leap to pay that if you haven't gotten to, to you know, give it a good go before and make sure it's what you're looking for before you spend that money. So you know, at this point, it's really a policy decision on Apple's side to not allow more flexibility in, in um, that kind of free trial stuff. Um, and then, I mean, I could go on and on. You know, the paid upgrades is is a huge deal. Um, you know, I was just talking to to Paul Haddad. You know, they obviously have done well so far with uh, Tweetbot three. And you know, he was he was telling me it's you know to him it's clear that that's what you have to do. And you know, their success is a pretty good indication to other developers that you know, hey, you're gonna you're gonna take a hit, but if you you know if you really work on it and build a great new app, people will pay, some will complain, but you, you take your lumps from the vocal minority and move on, but it's, it's financially viable. You know, you need to do that to, to be able to, to continue to exist. So, um, so, you know, even though people bitch and moan, your people, I mean, users, probably, you know, 13 year old kids in their mom's basement. Who knew, I don't know who these people are, but you know, th- these people who bitch and moan about it, they are the vocal minority. And at the end of the day, again, it's not about, you know, being millionaires and, you know, developers being so greedy, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, if we can make enough money to, to support our families and to be able to focus on building apps, we're just going to keep building more apps. Like that's, that's what's so funny to me. It's like, you know, when people talk about developers being so greedy and, you know, we're, we're, most of us are not making, you know, even, even hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, you know, like, um, it, it took a couple of years for me to even pay myself what I would probably make if I were working in the tech, sector, you know, I could go get a job and make as much as I'm making or more. Um, but I want to build apps. And so it's just so funny to me when people call developers greedy, when really like we're just trying to make good money so we can keep building great apps. And especially, you know, for people like me, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of bleeding hard on Twitter and stuff like that. But I mean, it's, it's, it's really because I'm passionate about the platform and like, I just want to keep building apps and my frustrations with the app store, my frustrations with, you know, monetization and, and my frustrations with Apple's policies and stuff like that is really just about, you know, wanting to build great apps myself and wanting to see other developers be successful so that they can build great apps. Um, you know, and another aspect to this whole discussion that I don't think it's brought up enough is that Apple 
you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, you got to market your app and, you know, Apple does, isn't, you know, you're not entitled to make money and Apple doesn't really control the app store. It's a free market and yada, 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 yada. Well, when you really start to break down, you know, the app economy, as people call it, it, it really functions in a lot of ways like a real economy. And so there are aspect to, aspects of free market principles at play. However, in that scenario, Apple is very much like a government who can control the, can and does control the economy through policy decisions. So, you know, when the government gives you a tax break for producing corn, more people produce corn. And in the app store, when Apple um, allowed in-app purchases and yet prevented you from using those in-app purchases to do a free trial, you know, where did people go with it? They went toward, you know, the free-to-play model. Whereas if they had introduced in-app purchases and said, you know, have fun, use in-app purchases to do whatever you want, I think things would have evolved a different way. If they would have said, you can use in-app purchases, but they can't be for digital consumables. Um, you know, they can only be for, you know, one-time purchase kind of things. It would have gone a completely different way. If Apple would have said, you know, you can have in-app purchases, you can do digital consumables, but you can also use in-app purchases to do free trials. Well, you know, I really think you would have had people like EA where instead of doing, um, free to play in some of their apps, they might've experimented with, you know, give you two, um, you know, let you play for two days for free and then charge you 30 bucks. I, you know, I think more people would have experimented with those kind of premium things if Apple had, had gone a different way with their policy decisions. And so when you look at Apple like a government and its policies like, you know, tax policy or other economic policy, it gives you a clearer picture of, what the app store economy really looks like because it is it is definitely 100% shaped by apple's policies um and and i don't think people understand how deep that goes even even things like the top grossing list um you know apple did that in some ways as a concession to developers because we had been talking about it for so long but what's interesting is even things like that by the time they implemented the top grossing charts, in-app purchase had taken off and these free-to-play games had taken off to where the, the top grossing chart, instead of rewarding higher-priced apps, which is what you know we were hoping yeah. for as developers, it actually started rewarding the whole free-to-play scheme because that was what started making money by the time they had implemented it. Um, and so there, the, there is a... And, and again, I'm not saying that, you know, um, developers are entitled to, you know, make tons of money and that, you know, App, Apple is holding us back and yada, yada, yada. You know, you know I've done well and, and, you know, happily continue to build apps. Um, but I would love to see Apple think about their position like um, a government in charge of an economy. And I would love to see their policy decisions reflect what they want to see in their platform. Um, so, you know, they talk about the iPad being a post-PC device and they show these amazing apps in their videos and stuff like that. 
well, how are those apps going to continue to make money and be sustainable over time? And, and I wish, and, and I get the impression that there's not. So I wish there was a team at Apple whose whole job was to look at that economy and help inform the executive level and others who make decisions on App Store policy to help shape the App Store to encourage what they want to see the App Store become. And I forget who tweeted it recently, and, and I feel terrible not remembering because I think it was absolutely brilliant. Um, but somebody said recently that, that their concern with all of this App Store economy s- stuff is that the apps that need to be built to make the post-PC world a reality aren't going to be built because they're not sustainable, because there's not the financial incentive to do it. And so if you think about all the time and effort um, you know, spent on the psychology of free-to-play and like scamming people out of out of I mean, those the whole concept of like the, how in-app currency is separate from real money because you're it's easier for you mentally to spend five thousand coins than it is for you to spend five thousand dollars. But you'll spend five dollars on 5,000 coins, but then you kind of lose track of reality when you go spend those 5,000 coins. I mean, people are sitting around thinking about those kind of things instead of thinking like, what's the next great piece of productivity software that the iPad needs, you know, to, to usher us into this post-PC world? You know, how can we further enable users to to make a break from their laptop and a, and a great example of this is is panics diet coda um you know that that app seems to have done really well early on um but as i've watched its rankings over time in the app store you know i, I doubt that app is making more than you know a few thousand dollars a month if that um, maybe it's more and you know i'm not as in touch with the ipad app store but an app like that you know a couple of, um, gosh, like a month after it came out, I had posted a blog post and then um, uh, was running some errands with my family and ha- like dawned on me this like major thing I needed to change. And I was able to edit my blog post in HTML on the fly in Diet Coda on my iPad while driving around in the car mm-hmm using, you know, 4G, like that is some badass post PC, you know, use your iPad kind of stuff. So you, you want to see an app like Diet Coda make tons of money. You know, I'd love to see an app like that making 50 grand a month because that's the kind of stuff that is ushering us into the future of the, the iPad and iOS devices, you know, being the future of computing. But when you look at the reality, and, and you know, again, I don't have exact numbers, but I, I, I can almost guarantee it's not making more than $10,000 a month. Uh, and it's probably, again, probably close to a couple thousand dollars a month. So when you have this deep, amazing app built by this big team of people who you know, have a code base that spans you know, a decade or more, going back to, to uh, Panic's Transmit app, and if that kind of app... Is, is not making much money, you know, what hope is there for other developers to go out there and build the kind of apps that, you know, we're going to need two years from now when more people are buying iPads than PCs. Um, and so again, I, I think um, 
I don't think it's all up to Apple. I think we do as developers, and I certainly do, you know, spend a lot of time on marketing and, um, you know, spend a lot of money experimenting with, you know, trying to find ways to, to market my app outside the store and to, you know, be successful without, you know, depending on Apple for being featured and without, you know, even with this whole iOS 7 shift, you know, I decided this summer to go ahead and try um, launching a pro as a paid app and Mileage Lock Plus as a paid app and Perfect Weather as a paid app, hoping that with the transition to iOS 7 that more people would be looking for apps and be more willing to pay for apps during this transition. So I made a conscious choice to kind of, you know, swim upstream. And ultimately, I don't think that was the best strategy. I think, you know, maybe I should have spent more time, you know, on monetization and gone freemium with all my apps um, as they migrated to iOS 7. Um, but anyways, you know, the point being, I'm not, I'm not just, you know, sitting here saying, you know, Apple, give me my money. You know, I'm entitled to make all this money. Uh, I'm out there experimenting and busting my butt and, and talking to other developers and figuring out, you know, how the app store economy works and, and the best ways to do it. Um, so when I talk about Apple and, you know, the things that I think they should do, I, I don't say that in, in that, you know, I'm entitled to to whatever and and should make more money and all this, but what I what I'm you know the ultimate goal is that you know if Apple can see the App Store as an economy that they pull the strings to, which is really the truth, and start shaping the that economy in the direction um, that is most meaningful for their platform. You know, they, I mean, right now it's so optimized to apps like Candy Crush, but Candy Crush is on, you know, Windows Phone and Android, or it may not be a Windows Phone, but it's at least on Android and stuff. So there's no like platform differ- differentiation or lock in when Candy Crush is making money. So Apple doesn't, you know, benefit. Supercell is building all their apps out on Android. So there's no huge benefit to those kind of apps making money um, for, for the long term of Apple's platform. So you know, what does benefit Apple in the long run? It's apps like Diet Coda that, you know, the, the Android just can't touch. And the creativity of the independent developers in the iOS community is a huge, huge resource to Apple. And I, I really think that, that they don't quite cherish that enough. Um, you know, I think they, they sometimes treat that as an expendable resource, that there will always be new developers, there will always be, you know, new apps and new creativity and stuff. But, you know, where the rubber meets the road, you know, the, the, the amazing, you know, breakthrough apps are mostly coming from independent developers. And a lot of the, the post-PC push is coming from, you know, whether independents or small companies like Panic and stuff, um, so I just think Apple needs to to embrace that and and um, and optimize things in that direction and make policies that benefit the apps that they want to build. And a perfect example of this is uh, I wrote I actually filed a radar this summer and I said you know Apple should tweak it's in essence Apple should tweak the search results of the App Store to um, to optimize for their priorities. And so their priority leading up to iOS 7 was they wanted all the developers who could to 
build for iOS 7. So, you know, what would make sense then? Um, if they want developers to optimize for iOS 7, they should reward that behavior, right? So, in, in, um, in this radar I filed, I said, you know, there, there are several ways that Apple could optimize search results to benefit developers who went iOS 7. And long story short, um, here came iOS 7. And if you search, even to this day, I mean, we're a month and a half out from iOS 7, or a month, month and a half out from iOS 7 launching. If you search the App Store for iOS 7 weather, you don't, you don't get apps that were built against the iOS 7 SDK that also you know, have weather in their titles. You get a bunch of apps that used search engine optimization and put I hid iOS 7 in their keywords. So even like simple things like that that Apple could have done, like optimize search so that iOS 7 compatible apps or iOS 7 optimized apps show up when you search iOS 7, even simple things like that, they, they, they didn't even bother doing. And so, it, you know, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll stop now before it turns into a bitch fest, but there's, there's just a lot of things that, is, that are just very obvious that Apple's not taking care to do in regards to, to all of these things that we've been discussing. And so there's just, there's just so many levels on which Apple could better optimize the App Store um, to support, I mean, not just to support developers, but just to, to push their own priorities. You know, I mean, you look at the U.S. government and to a fault, you know, every little thing that they pull strings on, you know, subsidizing corn or um, giving tax breaks to oil companies or, you know, that shapes the economies in dramatic, in dramatic ways. And, you know, the, the App Store is so shaped right now, but but Apple's not using that to its own benefit. It's just kind of letting it happen. Like it, it's made its policies, but it's it, it the policies that it's setting and the 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 economic incentives it's creating are not in its own benefit. So it, it's just a really odd situation. And gosh, I've rambled on for what an hour now. <laughs> A little bit over, and, uh, but it's been it's been fascinating. Like I, I'm sure that people will enjoy it because I've just been sitting here and just taking it all in. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, and sorry this to was turn one, it into this such was... a monologue, but I, I mean, I've just had so much on my mind, and and I appreciate you indulging me, just going on and on and on. When I when I invited you on the show, this is the type of thing that I wanted to to hear because I know that you are very you are a man who who has these opinions and you're very vocal about them. So I kind of wanted to give you a place where you could talk about them rather than just throw it out in 140 characters or or you know or write a blog post or whatever so thank you but we have come to the end of the episode now oh damn i can't talk anymore <laughs> i'll ha i tell you what i'll have you back on again how does no, that no, no, sound? i've I've, uh, I've 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 had my say I've, I've spoken all the words i can speak on this topic and reiterated probably a few too many times well, it's been a pleasure said and, and mr banner why don't you tell people where they can keep up with you and and the work that you're doing and follow uh, contrast and stuff like that sure so um you can follow me on twitter it's uh, dr bernard i'm not a doctor but uh, my middle name is richard so david richard dr bernard b-a-r-n-a-r-d on twitter um at contrast on twitter and you can find all my apps um on the web at um contrast.co awesome stuff 
I want to thank you all for listening to this week's episode. If you want to find the links, I've got all the links that we've mentioned today for this episode, go to 5x5.tv slash cmdspace slash 68. I am imike, I-M-Y-K-E on Twitter. Please feel free to follow me there if you would like to. I want to thank you all for listening uh, to this week's episode of Command Space. Thanks again to David for joining me. Until next time, bye-bye.